Amen. Well, not much is known about the, the Navy SEALs until a few years ago when a former Navy SEAL sat down with the Wall Street Journal to talk about his team and divulged actually what he felt was the most important quality that they possessed that made them effective at their mission. He talked about how the rigors for the SEALs occur the minute they step onto their training ground, which is the Basic Underwater Demolition SEALs Training, or BUDS, in Coronado Island. Uh, it is known universally as the most difficult military training on the planet. It takes six grueling months of these men's lives. And the classes that show up there are mostly high school and college track and football stars, champion swimmers, and high-ranked wrestlers and boxers. But in the end, only 10 to 20 percent of these people actually make it through the course of the six months. So they asked him, what kind of man makes it through? He said, it's hard to say exactly, but I can tell you who doesn't make it through. He said, the people who don't make it through are the weightlifting meatheads who think that the size of their biceps is an indication of their strength. He said, the high-maintenance boys who don't want to get dirty drop out as well, and so do the former Athletes, the look at me, former athletes have been told their whole lives that they're stars. None of those people make the cut. So then they asked him, who does? He said, well, there are many men who seem at the beginning to be basically impossibly weak. They're the ones who throw up on the runs. They're the, the ones who uh, can't do the pull-ups. But they end up being the ones who pass. There are also... Another group of them, the skinny, short, and the ones whose teeth chatter as they look out at the ocean. He said, those guys make it too. And so do those who are visibly afraid, who are literally shaking in their boots. They, as well, pass the test. He said, everybody who passes and survives this training has one thing in common. Even though they're in great pain and they're experiencing the worst test of their entire life, they're able to step outside the pain. They're able to lay aside their fear and be able to do one thing, to ask one question. How can I help the guy next to me? Everyone who makes it through is able to set aside all the trials and ask themselves, how can I help the guy next to me? He said that these men have more than courage and physical strength. They have a heart that is big enough to think of others and to get it, dedicate themselves to a higher purpose, purpose, to accomplishing the mission together as a team. Now, in Colossians 2, Paul is going to write us, urging us to look around and ask the same question. How can you help the gals that are sitting next to you? Maybe at your table now, maybe your small group, maybe that's in your ministry post with you. He's going to remind us of our greater purpose of investing in each other so that we can accomplish the mission he has set out for us. And in Colossians 2, 1 to 5, we're going to be there the whole day. I'd like you to open your text on your device or your Bible, but I'd like to read today's passage, Colossians 2, 1 to 5. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, the bottom line is here that Paul wants us to care, and I mean really care, for the Christians who surround you, and to spend your life investing in them and caring for them like a Christian would. He is eager, he was eager to care for the Colossians, and he wants us to be just as sold out to love the people that are in our foxhole, our boat, our small group, our church, as he was. Because especially as the world gets darker out there, we are going to be more and more in desperate need of each other. As we face the chaos and confusion, not just of our world, but even in the church across our nation, it's confusing, it's chaotic, but we have a mission to accomplish. And we need to be investing in each other so that we can reach people for Christ, so that we can teach them to obey Christ, so that we can teach them, train them, to serve Christ. We need to be together, investing in one another and caring like Christians so that we can accomplish the bigger purpose that God has given us. Yeah, we need to eagerly care for others in the church. And the first part of that is going to be found in verse 1. Paul says, I want you, Colossians, to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul was continually giving himself away. He was doing it cheerfully. He was doing it willingly. He was doing whatever it took, particularly when it come, came to someone's relationship with Christ. This is what we, too, need to be up to with our hours and our days. We need to, point number one, sacrifice for others' spiritual good. Sacrifice for others' spiritual good. Paul did this every single day, basically, of his adult life. And he actually expected and trained those that were his disciples, that he was the mentor of, to do exactly the same thing. And he was not shy about telling them how hard it was going to be. I mean, right up here up front, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. This is really hard, really hard. But we know that Paul went farther and did more than any other Christian in the New Testament except Jesus. We see it, and we have all these books in the Bible because of it, and we're blessed all the time when we read our New Testament, because of the sacrifices and the hard struggle that Paul had for them and directly for us. He called this service a great struggle. He calls it a hard-fought battle. That's another way of putting it. It's the term agon, and that's the same root from which we get the word agony. Agony. Agony means, and agon means, to endure extreme or prolonged pain and suffering to endure extreme and prolonged pain and suffering. He's talking about caring for other Christians, and that's the way he describes it. Hmm. Enduring extreme and prolonged pain and suffering. It's the kind of strenuous training and per personal deprivation that you would need to be a high-ranking um, athlete, maybe an Olympian. It's that kind of dedication that you would have to have. Think of a weightlifter, for instance, at the Olympics. He's got the right shoes, he's got the right gloves, he's got the right equipment, and um, he's obviously super buffed, right? You can see it. And he's very disciplined. He's been depriving himself of, you know, I don't know, sweets for his entire life, blizzards or something, Krispy Kremes his whole life, and you can see it. And when he gets to the Olympics, 
He stands there up on that stage. His name is called, and he bends down, and he picks that thing up, and it's extreme exertion, right? He's got his hands in the right place. Extreme exertion just to get it to here. And then in the last second, with sheer determination, he presses it up, right? That right there is egon. That is the great struggle that Paul is describing as he's caring for these Christians. It's no small effort. It's no minor inconvenience in his schedule. It's great exertion. Agon was also the word that's used for what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was begging God to, well, basically let him out of the suffering and the cross that he was about to experience. It says he was wrestling God, with God so much that he was sweating. It was pouring down his face as though it was blood. His sweat was. Agon is also the word that is used by the writer of Hebrews, where we are in our daily Bible reading now. But in chapter 1, he said that we should lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race, agon, that is set out for us. It's this extreme struggle. That's the kind of exertion Paul's experiencing because he's caring for the Colossians. He's giving it his all. Now, frankly, we kind of have a hard time with that kind of sacrifice and struggle because we would rarely exert ourselves that much, except maybe for people in our own family. We certainly wouldn't do it for people we don't know. I mean, that would be like caring for people from Eagle, Idaho, or Green, Texas, or Garden Grove, Santa Ana, Prosper, Texas, these places we've never heard of, these places we've probably never been, these places that we don't even necessarily know people who've ever lived there. But the thing that all those cities have in common is they are in the bullseye of a compass plant. And they are the people that those teams are trying to reach even today with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we give and encourage and reach out and sacrifice to make our plants a reality, we are actually impacting those people that we don't necessarily know for the sake of Christ. Now, every so often, I get to visit one of our plants, and it's a very exciting time. I just, I can't even actually put into words how amazing and cool it is to walk into a plant, usually a warehouse of some kind or a school, and to find a church where there once was none. I mean, it's just like the coolest feeling. And I would implore you to go visit. Visit all of our plants. Go see them with your own eyes. Walk in and experience what it's like to see that a new lampstand has been built in a location because of the vision of your church and the sacrifices that you've made to send people and to give for this effort. It's the coolest feeling. But in every single one of these plants that I go visit, the same experience happens to me. I walk in and I look around and I'm trying to find someone that I recognize in the crowd or that recognizes me. And it doesn't happen. And like for a minute, I realize what a visitor feels like. And you know what? It's so good for me. And when you visit, it will be good for you too. But as I'm looking around for a familiar face and I can't find one, I have a choice to make. At that moment, I can complain because there's no one there to greet me. Or I can thank God that there's no one there to greet me. Because the people that would greet me, frankly, they're all too busy. They're too busy greeting others. 
They're too busy taking their kids to Kidsmen, making sure they have a bulletin and a seat and know where the bathroom is. So they can't spend time on me knowing where all those things are. And it makes me praise God and realize because of your efforts and their efforts, the room is full of strangers. And because it's full of strangers, you know what I know? I know that church is doing exactly what we sent it out from here to do. They're missionaries, and they're trying to reach all those cities I listed for you. It's a very interesting moment. These people have given up a lot. These teams, they've given up you. They've given up women's Bible study like this. They've given up the Fall Fest that we just all got to experience last week. They've even given up walking in this room and never having to think about the seat that they sit in. You walked in. Did any of you bring your chairs in from a back room? No. They have to bring the chairs in. They work every kid's men. I mean, they don't even come to main service, sometimes for a couple years, because they work kid's men so that the people in all those cities I just listed get to hear about Jesus Christ and have their kids ministered to at the same time. So I thank God when I walk in and I see a bunch of strangers because I know our team is doing the right thing. They're reaching people for Christ. Yes, they've made lots of sacrifices, but they're reaching people for Christ. Now, you don't have to go on a plant in order to sacrifice for others' spiritual good. You can do it right here. Obviously, there are posts all across our campus, even today and all throughout the week, that need your help, that need your, you know, you holding babies and you directing traffic. They need you. But, you know, your sisters also need you. There's people all across the campus that need you to love them, to comfort them, to correct them, to befriend them. Those are all ways that you can sacrifice for their spiritual good as well. Many, many ways to do it. Now, I don't need to prove to you that Paul sacrificed a lot. I know that Natalie read that list in 2 Corinthians 11 to you, the labors and stonings and beatings and shipwrecks and all that, right? But I want to remind you, just like I did when I came last time, that Paul also gave up his relationship with Epaphras. Remember, Epaphras was one of his disciples. He had been his mentor. He was his friend and his companion. And he sent Epaphras off to plant this church. And for a time, he lost his companionship. It's something we're very familiar with, isn't it? We lose our leaders. We lose our friends. And we lose, sometimes, our pastors. Sometimes our favorite pastors. Don't tell my husband. But, uh, and they go off to these plants and, and we lose them. Paul understood what that was like. But you know, sometimes it's hardest to be the one that's left behind here. The one that has to fill the holes. The one that has to take up the slack in the not quite so exciting ministry that we have back at home. Both are a sacrifice and both are important. Now, it does seem very costly for us to give up our lives for people we don't know that well. But it's just what Paul would have done. It's just what Jesus would have done. In fact, it's all over the New Testament, loving other Christians sacrificially. Romans 15, 1 to 3 is one example. Paul says here, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. For each of us please his neighbor let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. Christian love also limits our liberties and the things that we can do with our free time and our money, right? And even our diet 
1 Corinthians 8.13 explains this. It says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I cause my brother to stumble. The love we have for other Christians limits what we can do. And 1 Corinthians 13, you know, gives a huge list of ways that we can sacrificially and unconditionally love Christians. But just one of them I want to bring to your attention is the one that says that we do not insist on our own way. Or if we love like a Christian, we will be self-forgetful. That's what that means, self-forgetful. We'll stop worrying about what we have and what we need or think we need. Need is such a strong word. Seriously, you need that? We give that up. We are self-forgetful and meet others' needs instead. Paul wants us to love even strangers who are believers in Jesus Christ. He understands it's challenging, but it's an assignment we must be willing to embrace. Not to just love our friends and family and people we know and care for here, but to love all God's people here at this church, at our plants, near and far, and even places like the persecuted church in Afghanistan and China and Nigeria. God wants us to love all Christians. And as he allows me to travel, and sometimes I get to do it with Mike and sometimes alone, but um, I find there are women just like us, all over the place. They love God. They love his word and they're eager to do it. They love to worship together and they're all over. God wants us to love those people and not just, you know, ourselves and our own little family. Now, what are some ways that we could actually sacrifice for others' good? We said we could do it here, yes, but we could also do it thinking beyond ourselves. One of them is getting the Operation World app on your phone. That's where you will get a country that will come up every single day. I'd love for you to pray for that country, but more than that, I want you to pray for the Church of Jesus Christ in that country. Let that app be a motivation for you to pray for believers there. We don't know what they're experiencing, but pray for them that they would have strength. Or how about get on the Voice of the Martyrs email list. Every couple weeks, you'll get an email which will introduce you to a real person who has a real name, who is sacrificing for Jesus Christ and may have lost their husband, may have lost their home, may be running for their lives, and they need our prayer, and they even need us to give to them financially. And if you don't go to church on vacation, why not? Why do you not gather with other Christians in other places to worship together and learn the Word of God? It will enrich your spiritual life to realize we're not the center of the planet. And it will help you. It will bless you. But not only that, it will help your children. They will realize that church is non-negotiable. Just because we're at Disney World doesn't mean we don't go to church. Um, it will also help them to someday choose a church themselves. When they're out of the compass bubble and now they're off at college or they've moved out of your house, will they choose to go to church? If you've never been anywhere else, it's going to be way more difficult for them to make that leap and find a good church. Go to church on vacation. You will see that there are God's people everywhere, just like Elijah did when God came to him and said, I have 7,000 people that are still faithful to me in the nation of Israel. There are lots of God's people out there. Another thing you can do to sacrifice for others is to give to focal point. I, I mean, you get to hear this great teaching all the time. And I will brag on him. It's great Bible teaching. You get to hear it all the time. Other people want to hear it. And frankly, they'll never be able to give any money 
but you might have a little extra. Everywhere we travel, we find focal point listeners who don't have any good churches anyway within driving distance of their homes. And they depend on this good Bible teaching. So give to that. Well, how can we sacrifice for others good right here? I said it all, I mentioned it already, but find a ministry post, of course. Yes, find a ministry post, make sure you're doing it. But also there's all kinds of spontaneous acts of love you could be doing across this campus. Finding out about people's needs. For instance, getting on the um, compass prayer chain. And what, I, what you do with that is it's not about you being in the know about who's sick. It's about you praying for the people who are sick and suffering. And, and you can't even get on the prayer chain unless you commit yourself that you are going to pray regularly for those people. How about the spontaneous acts of love that could happen even today? Where you're sitting with your friends right now, but you happen to know that this girl from your small group needs an extra encouragement. She's going through some difficult stuff. What if you found her across the room and walked to group together instead of your buddy? There's a spontaneous act of love where you could be sacrificing yourself and your little five minutes with your friend to minister to someone else. Give rides, babysit, but always be ready even for the little divine appointments that happen in your everyday life to sacrifice for another Christian. And don't forget we said part of loving others is actually showing up here. And I'm so happy to say, the room is full, you're here. Last time I was here, I happened to say something like, yeah, we'll see if you're here by week seven. Ha, this is week seven. I didn't know it when I said it. And congratulations, you're here. So um, yes, being here um, is a huge part. Doing your questions, participating, and being there for your group and your leaders. Paul obviously sacrificed a lot for the Christians in Colossae, and he is our example to do this eagerly. Well, hopefully you're motivated to sacrifice a little bit more, but all of our ministry minutes are limited, right? You can literally not serve every single minute of your 24-hour day. So what should we focus on if we only have a certain number of minutes? Woo, that almost went out of my hand. What should we focus on, okay? Well, Paul's going to tell us in verse 2 and 3 here, um, but starting in verse 1, it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Then verse 2 says, We sacrifice, basically, so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul knows that the priority should always be helping people spiritually. That's what that was all about right there, to help them spiritually, okay? It's to help them get saved and to help them grow in Christ. We must spend our hours, our minutes, our prayers, our days in helping people to get closer to Jesus specifically. That's what we're going to zero on here. Or point number two, we need to be the reason others know Christ better. Be the reason others, sorry, know Christ better. We want to help others grow. We want to help others grow spiritually specifically. Paul's going to give us three buckets to do that in this chunk right here. You might not have seen it, but there's three buckets, Okay. The first way that we're supposed to help them know Christ better is to help their hearts be encouraged. That's what it says. To encourage. To encourage literally means to instill someone with courage. It means to give them confidence. It means to persuade them to do something they didn't think they could do. That's what it means to encourage someone. Instill them with courage, give them confidence, 
persuade them to do something they didn't think they could do. Paul says that's why he wrote them, and also that's why he sent Timothy. In Colossians 4.8, when we get there in the spring, this is what it's going to say. Paul says, I sent him, that is Timothy, to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's why he sent Timothy, was to encourage them. Now, the word encourage is parakaleo. You probably recognize that because that's the word for the Holy Spirit. Over in John 14, when God or Jesus is going to leave the planet, he says, I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit here to be your helper, parakaleo, to come alongside you, to assist you, to urge you forward, to be there for you. Now he's telling us to be the person who comes alongside, who encourages, who's there for the person. Now, a teacher I knew who did this once very well was a teacher who wrote on her sixth grade student's report card these words. She said, it has been a joy to have you in class. Keep up the good work and invite me to your Harvard graduation. And because of that teacher's encouragement, 21 years later, she was sitting at that student's Harvard graduation. Now, God wants the Colossians and us to invest in others' spiritual lives. We talked about encouragement was one bucket. The next bucket is so that they would be knit together in love. That's what the verse says. That means to be united, united because of our love. And it's described in 1 Corinthians 1.10. This is what it says there. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And places like Philippians 2, 3, and 4 explain to us how we can do that. How do we get that one mind and that like-mindedness? How do we do it? The key to doing it is to do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourself, and let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. If you do that, if you start to look out for other people's interests, it won't matter to you if yours are satisfied, if your needs or wants are satisfied. You will be united with them. You won't be carrying grudges. You won't be trying to you know, go make sure that you get what you think you deserve. And Paul wanted everybody to be one. So he was very good at modeling it and teaching it and encouraging it, as he did here. One of the great benefits that happens when Christians are one, when they are united, is that we get to share the joy of being like-minded with our church. And it's actually very important that we are like-minded with our church, that we believe the same things, that we row in the same direction. Because distractions and divisions here, frankly, they just derail the purpose for which we're trying, that we're trying to accomplish. When we're divided about things, well, we're distracted. We're distracted and we're not very good at our task and we're also not a very good witness to the people who are outside these doors when we're fighting over things that don't matter. But it is important that we are like-minded on certain things, like what we believe. It's important that we are like-minded with the people in our church and we believe the same thing about the Bible, about God, about the gospel, about the church, about the future. We call that our doctrine, okay? But I think it's also important that we are like-minded on how we try to reach people for Christ. If you have a 
pet project and it's just never going to happen here, then it's going to be really tough for you. But we want to be like-minded even about things like our distinctives, that we're all trying to keep a high view of God, that we're all trying to make sure we are expressing a biblical gospel, that we are all trying to rely on God in prayer. It helps when we're all rowing in the same direction and no one is trying to, you know, make us go someplace else. Just distracts and keeps us from effectively building God's kingdom. It's very important that we are united. Then Paul gets to the third bucket in verse 2 and 3. He said he wanted them to be encouraged. He wanted them to be united. And now he says, I want to help them reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that's trying to say is we want to help people understand and know God and his word. I mean, we, it's all poetic and everything and lots of words, but we want to give them understanding of God and his word. We want people to grow in their understanding of God and his word. And um, obviously, God has been revealing himself slowly over time in the Old Testament for centuries, through the prophets, through the written word. But at the perfect time, God came to earth in the person of Jesus. And at that point, he revealed all these things that had been hidden about God. And now we know everything we need to know right now about God because Jesus came. He is the, the mystery revealed of God. Now, all that wisdom and knowledge and understanding that we get from Jesus, it's not just good, it's incredibly reassuring. It says here we get assurance because of that. The knowledge is one thing, but of course the practice, the living out... The wisdom is the acting out on the knowledge that you have of God. So having the understanding is one thing. Having the living out is another. You put them together and you have great assurance, great assurance of your relationship with God. And the more assured you are of your salvation, the less apt you will be to fall off the path somewhere, to listen to teaching that's not quite right, to be drawn away into bad theology. So how do we do it? How do we encourage how do we promote unity? How do we help teach people God's knowledge and wisdom? I have a whole bunch of ways for you. I didn't even count how many. But the first two have to do with that first bucket, which is encouragement. I have two of them for you about encouragement. The first way that you can practice encouragement is by encouraging people with your words. Encouraging people with your words. Now, Ephesians 4.29, we know it very well, but it tells us what our words should be. It gives us three things. It says that our words should build up, they should meet the need, and they should give grace. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, to build up means that our words should make people stronger. To meet the need means that our words should fit the situation that we're in with this person. When it says our words should give grace, it means that they should point people to Jesus. So our words need to make people stronger. They need to fit the situation, and they need to point people to Jesus. If you can say those kind of words to people, you're going to encourage them. But a simple way to put it is something that my friend Bethany Kelly has been saying to me lately. And she says, if I think it, I say it. That's her little motto. If I think it, I say it. And what she means by that is when I get prompted to 
I think something about a person, I go, wow, they're doing such a great job in that two-year-old classroom. I am so thankful. I drop my kids off there, and it's the greatest experience for them. They come home so pumped. If I think that, I should say that to the person. I should encourage them with my good words, right? If I see someone who I think, whoa, they're going through such a difficult time, but I see them trusting God, not being drawn under by their grief. I see them trusting God. I should text them, and I should tell them that. I can see how you're trusting God. You're such a great example for others. If I think it, say it. I mean, how many promptings have you left sitting there on the table? How many opportunities have you missed that the Holy Spirit has reminded you of something and it went nowhere? Well, now it's time to stop that. If you think it, say it. Another way that we can encourage people is to just be with them. Just be with them. Paul wanted to be with these people so bad, but he couldn't. He was so frustrated by that. Our touch when we hold someone's hand when we give them a hug, our touch means so much. The kind words that we say to them, praying, sitting next to them, these are all ways that you can encourage someone by just being there. I know we're all busy. I know it's inconvenient. And frankly, I know it's going to take twice as long as you think it will. It is. But there's nothing that says that you love them more than when you show up in person. It's better than any card, any text, any email. And guess what? In the doing, you're going to end up being blessed. You're going to walk out of there going, that was the best use of the last three hours of my life. <laughs> Whatever. It's going to be the greatest. You're going to see God's going to bless you. Paul wanted to see people. He wished he could see them. And you can. So go seize the opportunity. The next bucket had to do with unity. I think one of the most important things that we can do to encourage unity in other people is by modeling it ourselves. If we're the ones who aren't complaining, criticizing, tearing down, like, oh, bummer, I have to go to the Friday night Christmas coffee instead of the Saturday morning? Ugh. Okay, don't be the one who says that. Be content and happy. It's an outreach to bring your friends and your neighbors, whichever one you get in, be all behind the team, right? Oh, well, I didn't know there would be a Friday night. I would have picked that if I had, okay, just let it go, okay? Let it go. Be the one who gives others the benefit of the doubt. Be the one who asks forgiveness for your sin. Be the one who grants forgiveness without hesitation, without holding a grudge, without bitterness. You can model what it is to be a loving and hearts knit together, united Christian, just by your example. And then, of course, the last bucket was about teaching God's truth, helping people have wisdom and understanding. You just need to use your conversations to talk about God and his word. It's actually very simple. Sorry, Dad, can't answer the happy birthday call. <laughs> um, that's the second time he's tried. I was driving here when he called the first time. Never got to talk to him. Anyway, um, use your conversations, which I will when I get back to him. Use your conversations to talk to others about God and his word. Whether it's talking about the DVR, women's Bible study, what you've learned in the sermon. Your knowledge and application of God's word and sharing it with others can only help them. But of course, you have to know it yourself because if not, you're going to be sharing your best opinion instead of God's view on the situation. So be an accountability partner. Take a ministry post. 
Become a small group leader. Be a partner's guide. Teach sparks. Teach toddlers. Teach in the fifth and sixth grade class. Use your mouth to make a difference and teach God's truth. All three of these, I've got a couple suggestions where I think it mashes all three of them together. The first is adopt a missionary or a, a compass plant pastor and family. You can do all three if you adopt them. And what I mean by that is get on their email list. Find out what their prayer requests are. Get the church address and write them. Write their family. Tell them how much you're encouraged by what they're doing to meet their, reach their community for Christ and the many sacrifices they've made. Know their kids' names. Pray for their kids by name to become real followers of Christ. It's hard for those kids to become real followers of Christ. Frankly, they see the underbelly of the church. So pray for their kids to get saved. Pray for their parenting, that their parenting would lead to more leaders in the Christian community because those children rise up and serve. Adopt, adopt a missionary family from our church or a compass plant pastor. And the last one for this section is go to NEC. If you don't know what NEC, it's the National Equipped Conference. The next one is not for almost two years. We meet together every two years. And by the way, the NEC is sponsored and led by and taught by the Compass Plant Association. It's only us. It's, it's designed and developed and taught by your pastors and the pastors at HB, and the pastors at Tustin, and the pastors at all the other plants. We had 19 pastors each teaching in workshops at the last NEC, and you missed it if you weren't there. It was the greatest thing to get together and learn God's word together, but also be surrounded with people who are all rowing in the same direction. We're all committed to church planning. Who's next? Where are you going? And to sit in this room with people I will never see again until the New Jerusalem that have been reached for Jesus Christ by our plants. You will be able to encourage the plants and the pastors by going. You will feel the unity of all of us having the same purpose, and you will learn. We've got amazing pastors across all of our plants. You will learn and you will grow. So go to NEC. The next one, 2024, so don't tell me you're too busy, in the summer in New Braunfels. You have over a year and a half to get ready for the next NEC, okay? So when you hear it coming, don't go, oh, I don't even know what that is. Forget it. No, yes, you do. You know what it is. Go and be a part of it. All right. We're all in and we're ready to sacrifice. Paul has one more request of us. And this one is because it's not enough for us to teach our little toddlers to walk. Eden and Levi are both, my little grandkids are both walking. Eden is just walking. Levi's been, yeah, he's a pro now. But, you know, we don't just go, oh, they can walk? Great. See you later. Right? We're not done with them because they can walk. We're still wanting to protect, guide, and shape where they go next. Same is true for Christians. Just because they're saved and maturing doesn't mean we, don't, we just forget about them. We don't care what happens to them anymore. Paul cared, and so should we. He turns to this topic in verse 4. He says, I say this. Oh, what's the this? Verse 3 ended with, in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay. I say this, all that stuff. In order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul's finally revealing basically why he wrote this letter. He wrote it because there was false teaching. He wrote it because there was people trying to convince them that, frankly, God and Jesus and the way to salvation wasn't quite enough. They needed something more. 
He wants to protect them, just like we should want to protect the people that we love, the people we've invested in, the people that we've seen grow around us. We have to be concerned about people continuing on in Christ. We have to, point number three, protect others from spiritual danger. Protect others from spiritual danger. Paul is concerned for the Colossians. He does not want them to be swept away from the sound teaching that they got from Epaphras. And he doesn't want them to think that there's something more or better than Jesus. We should fear the same thing with the Christians that surround us. Because frankly, there is so much whack stuff going on out there. And I don't just mean in the world. I mean in the Christian community. How many whack things are we hearing we need to be careful. We need to protect those, what they're hearing and what they're believing. Uh, our number one concern after someone gets saved and after they are walking with Christ is that they wouldn't lose the progress that they've made. We don't want them taken in by false teaching. It reminds me of our trip to Niagara Falls this summer. Mike and I went to Niagara Falls, which I have to tell you, Frank, being from the West Coast, having never been there before, it's really cool. I mean, it's really cool. Some of you from back there, you're like, of course, I've been there 12 times. Okay, well, not too many Western, Western U.S. people that I've heard have actually been there. It is amazing. What a creation of God. I mean, it's right up there with, you know, Yellowstone, Yosemite, and uh, Grand Canyon. Okay, it's right up there with that. And I will, not, I, will, I will not forget. But another thing that I will remember about Niagara Falls is the speed at which the water rushes towards the falls. It's astonishing when you're sitting there and you're like, ah, and then all of a sudden you see this water just rushing by and you realize how fast it's going if you take two seconds to think about it. It's actually going 22 miles an hour. Now, okay, 22 miles an hour, it's not even residential. I mean, like, come on, that's not a big deal. Okay, but then I looked it up because I was always impressed by how fast it was going. I looked it up. The average swimmer in the best conditions can only swim two miles an hour. So 22 is pretty darn fast, right? I mean, you, get, you fall into that. You slip into that. It is a very powerful pull towards Niagara Falls. Very powerful pull. If you slip out of a boat upstream, maybe, or you're trying to take the perfect selfie and you just tumble right in that water, it's not going to be good for you, okay? In fact, unless you've got a bunch of highly trained rescue workers with their equipment on that are ready to dash into the water, you're pretty much in serious trouble of being swept over those falls. And it's not just the speed, by the way. <clears throat> it is also the volume at which the water, a volume of water that is rushing towards it. Every second, 700,000 gallons of water are going over the three falls at Niagara. Okay, 700,000 gallons. Thinking of your milk jug? Everybody thinking of your milk jug in your refrigerator? Not 100 of those, but 700,000 of those. Okay, 1,001. 700,000 have just gone over Niagara Falls. 1,002. 700,000 gallons have just gone over the falls. It's pretty fast, and it's a lot. It's why the National Park Service has built fairly tall and substantially curved railings with lots of slats. They're trying to discourage you from getting too close to the edge. They're trying to keep you from going in. Because if you fall in, pretty much it's going to be game over for you. If you Google it, you'll find that out, how fast it is. Now, <clears throat> not only is it fast and lots of water, but 
it gets even faster when it goes over the falls. 70 miles an hour is how fast it goes when it goes over the falls and crashes down onto the rocks. That is why 5,000 bodies have been pulled from Niagara Falls in the last 170 years. They began keeping track in the 1850s, and they pulled 5,000 bodies out of Niagara Falls. That's 20 or 30 deaths every single year. In fact, only 16 people have survived falling in to the river in 170 years. It's not very many. It's not very many people. Now, obviously, people do what they want to do. Some slip in accidentally, trying to get the perfect selfie, right? Or trying to camp on the river just perfectly upstream, and they can't get out. Um, but there are also people that obviously jump in on purpose. They want to end their lives. And then there are those that are thrill seekers. They want to be able to say they survived. You know the stats for all three groups are exactly the same? Almost no one makes it out. Less than one half of 1% will survive falling in. The volume, the speed, the height, it's a deadly combination for humans. Just like we would love to keep people from falling into the Niagara River and going over the falls, so too we would love to keep our Christian sisters from falling to error and, and perishing spiritually because they turn away and reject Christ. We don't want that to happen. It's why the national parks have set up things like signs and railings and cameras and even patrols to keep those people safe. We should be ready to do anything to keep people safe and throw anything at them to keep them from falling to spiritual peril in our lives. Now, in verse 4, Paul says to them, I'm writing so that no one will delude you. To delude means to deceive. It means to convince someone of a lie. And it happens most often, frankly, when people are alone. It's very dangerous to be isolated because that shiny new spiritual insight looks so good so good. It actually looks too good to be true when there's no one around to share it with. That's why Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. It's very easy to walk right up to the edge of the Niagara River or that false teaching and boldly and foolishly do that if there's no one or nothing around to stop us. Paul then says, let no one delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments are the persuasive things that a good defense attorney says to get a criminal off. If you're old enough, think of the name Johnny Cochran. Lawyers are smooth talkers. They're trying to convince people not to look at the evidence. And sometimes it works. And it even works sometimes on Christians. But it should not. We should not be swayed by flimsy arguments and lies that Satan spouts at us. Paul is beside himself here. He is chomping at the bit to get at these people, and he can't. Now, that's so different than us because we hear of sticky situations like this, and most of us beg God to send someone else. Not Paul. He wants to confront them. He wants to be with them. He wants to help them. In fact, in verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. It does not mean anything mystical. It just means that he loves them and he wants to help them. He wants to be the one right beside them to confront the false teachers. He does the next best thing, though. He sends them instructions on paper, and he sends reinforcements. He sent Timothy. But frankly, Paul's getting pretty upset here. He loves these people. As I told you before, Epaphras got saved under Paul's ministry at Ephesus, right? Then he went and he planted the church at Colossae, which means these are his spiritual grandchildren. They are people he cares about. And he does not want them to be deluded, to be deceived. Just imagine it, you grandmas out there. Imagine 
someone messing with your grandchildren who you love so much, and especially imagine them trying to confuse them about Jesus. What would you do to keep that from happening? What would you not do to protect them? And you moms, you would do the same thing. Your littles, okay, but now think about your teens and even your adult children. How many of you with adult children would like to talk to your younger counterparts? Say, do everything you can. Stop at nothing to protect them because my children reject Christ. If I could go back, this is what I would say. These people are important. So I guess the question is, do we love people like that? Do we care about whether or not they're going into error? They're getting tripped up by spiritual lies. They're going down bunny trails that are so anti-Christ when it comes to it. Do you care about that? I know it's messy. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult to persuade people of things they don't want to be persuaded of. But we need to love them enough and follow Paul's example to care about protecting them. Then in verse 5, he says he's rejoicing to see their good order and the firmness of their faith. He's excited about their spiritual strength in these two areas, good order, firmness of faith. Good order, these are both military. Good order has to do with like seeing a um, group of soldiers that are all marching in unison. They're all dressed meticulously. It's, they're well-disciplined, okay? Then the firmness of faith, these people are resolute, secure, immovable in their Christianity. They're not bending. He's happy about their faithfulness, and he has confidence in them. He's trying to tell them, no one could find a chink in your armor. This is good. I'm happy about this. Reminds me of that game Red Rover. Remember Red Rover when you were a kid? I know it's too violent now. We'd never let our kids do it. They might stub their toe. Okay, but when we were kids, you'd, they'd say, you'd have to call someone's name, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Carlin over, remember? Okay, and be a line of people all lined up with their hands all linked together as hard as they could, trying not to break, okay? And then I would run, 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 because I would look down the line and I would look for the weakest link, right? Because I would want to run through those people's arms and try to break them apart. Now, if I was, here's their hands, if I was able to break them apart, right, do you remember? Uh, then somebody from their team got to come over to mine, okay? But if I couldn't, oh, I ran into it and it didn't break and I bounced off of them and onto the ground, then I had to go be part of their team. What Paul is trying to say here to the Colossians, you are a well-oiled spiritual machine that no one can play Red Rover with and break you apart. He's applauding them for being, having no chinks in their armor, but he's still saying that he wants to protect them. I mean, just because they're strong doesn't mean they shouldn't be shored up, shored up and taken care of. So what can you do to protect others? I have three things, A, B, C. The first is anchor yourself in Christ. Anchor yourself in Christ. If you're going to help someone else, you have to be in a position where you're strong and where you're anchored in Christ. Of course, this has to be about the Bible, knowing the Bible and obeying the Bible, right? Jesus said that the wise man built his house on the rock and the rains came and the winds blew and it stood firm. You have to anchor yourself to Christ. Of course, that means the Bible, but it also means um, having a biblical worldview even about the things happening in our world. I have a suggestion, this, there's myriads of these, but I have three podcast suggestions for you. Not everyone is Christian, not every one of their podcasts is going to be perfectly biblical. Did not say that. These are suggestions, okay? The briefing, of course, biblical worldview. The second one is called PragerU, P-R, uh, let's say, P-R-A-E-G-E-R-U. This one is not Christian, but it's conservative about current events views of current events. And the last one is the world and everything in it. It's 
kind of like the briefing, but it's way more elementary. You could watch that or listen to that one with your children. Um, but anchor yourself in the Word of God and a biblical worldview. The second one, letter B, is be willing to get your hands dirty. No one likes conflict. No one likes dealing with people like this about error and truth. It's messy. It's yucky. It's draining. But God is in the people business, and aren't we glad he is? Because if he wasn't, we would not be saved. People are what God loves. These are his sheep. Okay? It's messy and yucky, but they're his sheep. We need to love them enough to do this. Jesus showed us how to do it in John 13. When he got down, he stripped down, and he sat on the ground, and he put their feet in his lap, and he wiped the dirt off their feet. And it was a servant's job, right? In John 13, 13 to 15, he says this to us. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, you're right, so I am. If I then am your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. What he's trying to say there is, is you need to serve others like this and even help them stay clean. Get dirty for them, right? Get down there and do it. The third one, letter C, is bathe everything in prayer. And I mean bathe it. Like yesterday's rain showers, that wasn't just a sprinkle. That was like deluge, right? The water's pouring down your hills if you live in the hills like I do. Saturate this completely, the situation with prayer. You have no right to go meddle in their life and poke around if you don't know God's view on it and if you have not saturated the whole thing in prayer. When someone's about to climb the railing at Niagara Falls, they better hope that there's a person with their hand on their shirt grabbing them or they're going down. We need to be that person grabbing them. And in case you think that this work is not worth it, it's just too much to sacrifice I don't want to be the reason, and I certainly don't want to get messy and yucky. Um, I got a truth bomb for you from James. James is the brother of Jesus. and the very last words of his epistle, he says this. James 5, 19 and 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you maunders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It is a praiseworthy thing to care for other Christians like a Christian would. Now, in the spring of 1940, the Dutch and the Belgians had already surrendered to Hitler, and the U.S. and the rest of the Allied forces were quickly retreating across the French countryside until they ended up coming up against a whole wall of water called the English Channel. The Germans had surrounded them, and they were backed up to the sea, basically. By late May, there were 400,000 English soldiers there and about 100 Allied troops. That means a half a million soldiers trapped against the English Channel there. They were stranded on this beach because the water in the channel was just too shallow for the military, the British military ships to come in and evacuate them. The German troops stood only a few miles away. They were ready to just go in and have this great victory and basically to slaughter a half a million Allied soldiers. But they decided to forego a land invasion to bomb the place from the sky. They decided to bomb the harbor and take out as many people as possible that way before they went in by land. The House of Commons in London was informed, or, and they told the people of England that you should expect heavy casualties. This is going to be a bad day, a very dark day. Thousands are going to be killed. That was when Winston Churchill called for the little ships, the little ships of any size and shape, to go and rescue our boys. 
to evacuate them and bring them out to the big naval ships that were out in the ocean waiting to pick them up. The half a million soldiers out there had pretty much lost hope of being rescued, trapped on that beach in France, and so they saw this very bizarre fleet of ships appearing on the horizon of the English Channel. There were trawlers and tugs and fishing boats and lifeboats and sailboats and pleasure craft, even a ferry and the America's Cup Challenger known as the Endeavor. There were 850 personal boats that came to their rescue. They were manned by civilian sailors who came out just to help their fellow citizens. Over the next day, excuse me, over the next nine days, with fiery dogfights going on over their heads between the Germans and the Royal Air Force of Great Britain, they had gone in there, and that was the plan from the military and Churchill himself, the plan was to save 20 to 30,000 soldiers by sending these boats in. But when it was all said and done in those nine days, they had saved 338,682 soldiers. That's how many were rescued from the beaches and brought back to England by these little boats that went out. The Germans won a huge victory, a huge victory. I mean, 500,000 soldiers left their guns, their ammunition, their equipment, their tanks on that beach. And actually 40,000 English and other allied, French mostly, soldiers were forced to surrender to Hitler. 40,000, but they saved over 300,000 soldiers. And of course you know of it as the miracle of Dunkirk. It is now known in history as one of the most remarkable naval operations in history. How did it happen? What made it possible? It's simple. It happened because of the love and the sacrifice of about a thousand British civilians who risked their personal lives to get in their little boats and head on over to the coast of France and to rescue as many as they could. That's why it happened, because they got in their boats and they did something and they loved their fellow man. These people did not set out to be heroes that day. They became them only because they cared for someone else. We're not asking to be heroes here, but I do pray that we will be ready to do what God asks us to do, and that is to care like a Christian. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for the many examples before us of those who have sacrificed and um, who have cared about people's spiritual lives and who have protected Christians. I can think of so many names and faces through history that have lived this kind of life, and obviously our example of Paul here, and even you, Jesus, who have done all of these things for us. I do pray that we'd be inspired by the example of those who have gone before us, and that we'd realize how important people are, and that we would ask, what can I do for the guy next to me? And we would care like Christians. I know these women here, they do care, and they do sacrifice. I pray that you would move every single one of us just a little bit farther down the spectrum to be just a little bit more like Jesus would be in our sacrifice and our commitment to each other. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.